Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. So I, I want to start by saying something, but I, I don't want you to judge me like right off the bat, right? Now, if you do, it's okay. I'm, I'm used to it. Look at me. But uh, just try to hang with me here for, for a second. My wife and I sometimes argue. I know, very shocking, like the only ones in this room. But here's where you might raise an eyebrow. I'm actually glad that we sometimes argue. In fact, I, I like it. And not because I'm like a disturbed weirdo. I just, I appreciate our conflicts. I was thinking about this the other day. A lot of our disagreements, conflict, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes I talk with couples, they're like, we don't fight, we just disagree. It's like, oh, no, semantics. Whatever you want to call it, conflict, whatever. They've been a gr- like a great source of growth for me. It's like a major part of who I am. And I'm not just saying this. A major part of who I am today is God using my wife to call me out on the stupid stuff that I do and then, and then challenge me. And if I were to bring my wife up here, I know she'd say the same thing, that God, that God has grown her through me challenging her and us pressing through conflict together. This is why one of my favorite questions to ask couples, and my wife always hates it whenever we, we do this. this is, in fact, she hates it so much she stopped setting me up on like double dates with friends, which is like, hey, win-win. Um, but I, I, love, I love this question. My favorite question I ask couples is, uh, what do you guys argue about the most? That's a great conversation. It's far better to talk about like kids or work or, you know, politics and weather. Because like what a couple argues about, man, that's a, that's a fun dinner conversation. Like now, now we're getting somewhere. You get to really know the couple. And so sometimes, you know, I'll ask this and sometimes couples will say, we never argue. We're just like so in sync. It's like, okay, well, first off, I don't believe you. Second off, I don't, I don't trust a guy whose wife doesn't call him out. So I just, guys tend to be cocky whose wives don't call them out and vice versa. I don't trust a, a woman whose husband doesn't call them out. And if you think I'm crazy right now, it's not just me. I love what Jordan Peterson said. This is in the context of relationships. He said, you want periods of peace punctuated by a good fight. Because it means you have something to offer each other and you're both growing. Now, maybe that seems highly insensitive, especially if it's like, man, I got into an argument with my spouse on the way here today. It can be like, you know, it can feel insensitive. But let me be clear. I'm not talking about unhealthy, toxic fighting that tears apart and creates homes where kids don't want to return to. Like bad conflict makes people retreat. I'm talking about like good, healthy, mature, growth producing conflict. It's a concept that is absolutely foreign in our society, but it's a concept that should be very much normative to us as Jesus followers. Now, you might be thinking, okay, hold on, Junior. I think you get the wrong beatitude because we just heard like Jesus say, you know, the peacekeepers. Isn't, when we talk about peace, isn't peace the absence of conflict? Ah, this is going to be so much fun. Grab a Bible. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. It's page 8, 10 in the Bibles in the chairs. Otherwise, I know a lot of people use their phones and tablets. Uh, We have the Bridge app and the Bible. Also, we have a lot of notes today. So just bear with me. Lots of notes today. But I do believe that these could be life-changing. I really do. These could be life-changing for our careers, for our homes, for our relationships, for our friendships And so we got a lot of ground to cover. Let me pray. We'll jump right in. God, we do thank you for the words that we hold in our hands. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we get to hold on to these together and study them as a family and hear from dad. And we thank you so much for this privilege. Father, we humbly submit ourselves to you. 
Do a surgery on us if you must with that sword. We know you'll speak. Father, I ask that we listen. May you tune out all distractions. And may we humbly submit ourselves, not fighting off situations that you bring to mind, not fighting off or excusing conviction, but just completely open to, to your conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms into Matthew chapter 5, we find ourselves back up on that all-too-familiar hill that we've been on for the last several weeks, this hill sloping down into the precious Sea of Galilee. The hard, burnt, uneven ground makes it a little bit difficult to sit and get comfortable. See, it's that part of Jesus' sermon where you know men and women start shifting their weight and their posture to relieve that ache from sitting on that hardened slope. A gathering like this requires no personal space, no boundaries. You have neighbors and coworkers and extended family that have all collided into this first century mosh pit, if you will. And many sitting there, it's hard not to feel an awkwardness for them because they know the faces that are all around them. See, there's an estranged family member just a little ways over, there's some familial bad blood, and it just makes it awkward to even see them, and now we're kind of sitting next to them. Or there's that old business partner that cheated them out of that deal, and it contributed to major financial struggles as a family. He's right over there. And there's that coworker that's, that's near impossible to work with. In fact, last week we were jawing at each other about a work issue on the job site, and now they sit right behind you. See, there they all sit together. And so their ears must have perked when the man sitting on the rock shouted this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So only he can put so much into one simple sentence. Now, at first read, it kind of seems like a, a basic sentence here. But there is so much to this. And so I just want to camp out here and, and unpack this more. And maybe the best place to start is... is is realizing that, and maybe some of you know this, but this is just a good a starting point. Um, as Jesus is teaching this sermon, he's teaching in Aramaic. That was his language, his spoken language. But as Matthew is recording this, he's recording it in Greek, because Greek, you could get it out to the masses. So I know it's a little bit confusing, but Jesus is teaching in Aramaic. Matthew is recording it uh, in Greek. And as Matthew records this, the, the Greek word that he uses for peace is erenopoios, um, peacemaker. But Jesus, when he said this, probably didn't likely say that because he's probably not teaching in Greek. Instead, he would have used a form of the Hebrew word shalom. Now, most of us are familiar with this word, right? It's a Hebrew greeting. If you go to Israel, you hear that a lot with the, you know, or maybe your Jewish friends, your Jewish family, you hear that a lot, especially on like Shabbat, Shabbat shalom. It's a beautiful word, shalom. Now, today we translate shalom as peace which is an accurate, it's not a bad translation, but it's a far richer word than just peace. The idea of shalom means the way things ought to be. So yes, peace, but not a fake harmony, not a everything's okay, not a sweep things under the rug and smooth things over. No, shalom is a peace where it's like everything is as it should be in this relationship, in this home, in this workplace, in the world. Shalom at its core is a longing for the Garden of Eden. That was the last time this world saw full shalom. It's before sin. There's no death. There's no curse. Nature functioned exactly how the Creator designed it. The, the world was a, a beautiful, beautiful place. There's nothing to fear. But the moment that sin entered the world, shalom was lost. Death is now introduced. Nature turned on itself, and everything was darkened and began to spiral. It's a little bit like if you watch Stranger Things. You remember, like in Stranger Things, you go into this like upside down reality 
and it's, it's similar to like reality, but it's like everything is darker and it's more depressing and it's more eerie. That's, it's exactly what sin did to Shalom. It, it just darkened everything. And so when Jesus says Shalom maker, if you will, what he's saying is as happy as the one who pursues the way things ought to be, which means to be a peacemaker, sometimes that's a fight. I've got to really press in here to make things the way they should be, not according to my opinions, but according to how God designed it. This is a person in a relationship or marriage, dating, friendship, who realizes this is not how things should be. We shouldn't be talking about this. This is not for us to talk about. It's gossip. It's not shalom. We shouldn't be having these tones with each other. That's not shalom. We shouldn't be making decisions like this. This is not shalom. We, we live in a community. Shalom is, is, is bouncing ideas off of our leaders and others in our community. We shouldn't have these attitudes. That's not shalom. And they will press against what's not right to bring about what is right. A shalom maker will temporarily enter into discomfort, conflict, awkwardness in order to put things back to where they ought to be. So this means peace is not just the absence of conflict. If peace was just the absence of conflict, then Jesus would have been the worst peacemaker ever. You think about it. Look, look at the Gospels. Like, like Jesus is always battling somebody. <laughs> Religious leaders constantly calling people out on their sin. The woman at the well, the Zacchaeus, the rich young ruler, um, the possessed. Like Jesus always seems to be in some sort of conflict, yet he's the ultimate peacemaker because he's putting things back to where they ought to be. Which... Long game brings true peace. See, here's the thing with this. We love this verse. Man, we love this verse. It's in some of our like grandmas, you know, hanging in our grandma's house, like peace. Like we love peace. Peace is postable. Peace is, peace is sellable. I mean, peace like, man, 1970s, you see, people love peace. We love this verse. We hate the application of it though. The reason that we don't have peace isn't for lack of desire, it's for lack of doing. Like the idea of peace is sexy, love that. Pursuit of peace is far from it. So the big question then becomes, what does peacemaking actually look like then? Specifically, what does peacemaking look like, let's say between those two coworkers that you have, that have it out for each other. You know what two coworkers I'm talking about, right? They never see eye to eye, and they're always trying to you know, find, find you and bring you into their side. What does it look like to bring shalom into that part of the workplace? Or maybe your marriage. Marriage started out fun and adventurous, but you know, after a few years and after a few kids, it kind of becomes this, this relationship of scorekeeping and just kind of picking at each other and you're just drifting apart. It's like, it feels like the only time you're ever on the same page as a couple is when you're complaining about somebody else. It's like far from shalom. So what would it look like to bring shalom into the home? Or you have that extended family drama. And maybe you're even dreading Thanksgiving coming up and Christmas coming up. It's like, ah, we got that drama. And everybody knows about it, but everybody just kind of tiptoes around it. And people are tired of walking on eggshells. And so the family just isn't close. What does it look like to bring shalom into that? Because the truth is, a lot of those situations, they really weigh heavy on us. Family issues are draining. Marriage issues cut deep. Work issues are like, you kill the workflow. They make you dread going into work tomorrow. For some of us, it almost feels like we're one relational fix away from like a lot more peace. And so what happens is we'll realize that. And we're like, man, we need peace. And so we'll try to facilitate some peace. Hey, can we just kind of be done with the drama? We'll try to facilitate it. The problem is we go about it the wrong way. 
And so I want to give you some misconceptions about peacemaking. These are prevalent in homes, offices, churches, friendships. These are done in the name of peacemaking, often with the greatest of hearts and the greatest of intentions. You want to make peace, but they just make it worse. Peacemaking does not, number one, sweep things under the rug. Peacemaking doesn't sweep things under the rug. And maybe this seems obvious, but I want to talk about this because we're still very, very, very guilty of doing this. I have this rug in my living room. It's a cheap rug. I had it for years. Nicole wants to replace it, but I like it. It's, it's white and gray. It looks faded, and I like it. And so some conflict in my home. We're arguing about the rug. But uh, it's cheap, and it's, to her credit, it's cheap, and it's thin, and so it'll bunch up. And so periodically, I'll have to, like, get down on the rug and, like, stretch it out and push, like, the couch, you know, to stretch. You ever do that? Like, push the couch because i got to stretch out the rug because I keep tripping over the rug. Many, 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 many offices, many homes have lumpy rugs. And I'm, of course, I'm talking metaphorically here. Here's how it often goes down. An issue will arise in the home, in the marriage, in the friendship, in the office. And maybe it's nothing too major, but it's enough to cause just some, some tough feelings, maybe even some resentment or some anger. But to talk about it would be awkward. To talk about it would be uncomfortable. Really don't want to enter into that conflict. So it'd just be far easier to let's just try to move on and not really talk about it, pretend it didn't happen, sweep it under the rug. That way we can enjoy quote-unquote, peace, a fake harmony. A lot of marriages, I see this in a lot with a lot of couples, pretend to be so great, but they have lumpy rugs. This is one of my friends, and I love small groups. Huge growth happens in small groups. But this is a common thing in small groups. One of my frustrations being in small groups is be like, it takes like six months to get the guys to go like, yeah, okay, my marriage needs some work. Like for the first six months, like, no, everything's great. My it's like, come on, let's just be real with each other. You got some lumpy rugs, let's talk about that. And over time, those lumps drive wedges between people. We don't have close relationships with people where there's topics that we can't talk about. I guarantee you, the closest relationships that I have in my life, it's with people where it's like, we can talk about anything. But when there's those relationships where it's like, we can't really go there, they tend to drift. That's not a life-giving relationships. Shalom doesn't have lumps under the rug. I think, again, I think about it in my own marriage or my own friendships. Any close relationship to that, there's no off-limits conversation. My wife and I can and do talk about anything. My close friends, anything. Like, nothing is off-limits. Doesn't mean we agree on everything, but, like, nothing is swept under the rug. Last week, I had a difficult conversation with a friend. He was calling me out on some stuff. I was calling him out on something. It was a really good, healthy point of conflict. But I love that we had that. Because if we didn't have that, we would just try to continue moving on in our friendship. We end up drifting apart because there's that topic that we can't really touch because there's just some hard feelings. Relationships that have things swept under the rug, those relationships are draining to have. And so for some of us, shalom, working for shalom, is addressing those lumps under the rug. And I'll say this to the husbands in here, uh, as the leader of the home, that is your job. It is not always fun. It's engaging in some conflict, but your soul and your family soul, your office soul longs for shalom in the relationship, not some fake harmony where things are smoothed over. Like, let's remember, God doesn't sweep things under the rug for us, right? Now, he gives mercy and he gives grace, but he calls our sin, sin, and it cost Jesus his life. Nothing was swept under the rug because that's not shalom. Sweeping, and I'll finish with this, just this point, not the sermon. Sweeping just prolongs the inevitable blow-up. This is the operating system of many, 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 many families. As families will spend years sweep, sweep another rug, sweep another rug. 
And, and then the big blow up comes. It always happens. Down the road, the big blow up comes. And when the big blow up happens, everybody is ill-equipped to handle the big blow up because they're so used to just, we're just so used to sweeping. That's a lot of families. That is not peacemaking. Peacemaking is not sweeping. Uh, it also doesn't downplay the severity of the sin. When I was in Africa in January, I think I told you this story. But when I uh, arrived in the village that, I, that we were staying in, I was in this compound and they had this well and then they had um, like a storehouse full of water and they said, Junior, do not drink from the well. Drink from the water bottles in the storage shed. And when they told me I couldn't drink from the well, all that made me want to do is drink from the well. And so every day just walking by the well, I was like, I want to drink from that well because I can't. And so on the last day, I drank from the well. And I spent the night puking my guts out, fever, chills on my flights back. It was, it was terrible. And when my wife confronted me about my stupidity, I downplayed the symptoms. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm fine, babe. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, because I don't want to freak out, of course. I'm like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, pretty much better. Look at me. Until I started puking blood. I was like, okay, well, now I should probably stop downplaying the symptoms because I need to deal with the actual issue. Sometimes we do this in nonchalant situations. So you have an issue arise at work, the team is soured, and there's a team member who's just killing the culture. This is often when bad managers will try to downplay the situation. So they'll have people coming in complaining, hey, we got to fix this, we got to fix this, this isn't okay. And a bad manager will be like, hey, it's not that big of a deal, it's not that big of a deal, let's just calm down, calm down, because they don't want to deal with the issue. That's not peacemaking. Peacemakers are convinced that sin ruins shalom. Sin always ruins shalom. Therefore, we can't downplay what's ruining shalom. We're only fooling ourselves. God does not do this with us. He doesn't downplay our sin. Scripture says that we were enemies of the Almighty. That's severe language. Enemies of the Almighty. Now, through Jesus, we have peace with the Almighty, but our sin was not downplayed. Next, peacemaking does not make mountains out of molehills. Have you ever been guilty of, because I have, have you ever been guilty of feeling something? Maybe you're watching the news and you get angry, you know, like, I've been feeling that, like, just seeing what's going on in Israel. I've been getting angry about just the terrorist attacks in Israel. And then I get angry about the, the, the people who are backing the terrorists. Like, I just get angry about that. And, and, and that it can be over a lot of different news items. Have you ever watch, like, news, you get angry about something, and then you go on social media just to vomit? A lot of times we'll like process our thoughts and our feelings by posting. And it, at first it kind of feels good because like I'm going to post, vomit. It's like, ha, ah, I feel like I did something. Even though you did nothing, it just kind of feels like you did something. And then it triggers comments and it elicits all these social media fights and all this division. Now you got grandma who doesn't even watch the news arguing with Aunt Susie. And, and it's just like this big, big blow up. Suddenly the little issue, the little, but the issue that you had, which was a real issue, is a far bigger issue. And this is dumpster fire. You didn't mean to, but what you did was you made a mountain out of a molehill. Nobody ever says, I'm going to take this molehill and make it into a mountain. Nobody does that. Nobody does it intentionally, but we do it because it feels good to vomit the emotions, and then we have a mountain of vomit. This happens in offices and teams all the time. Usually it happens this way. Uh, the boss will say something. And maybe it's a little insensitive, but it shouldn't be that big of a deal, like kind of get over it type of thing. But your coworker can't shake it. Your coworker's upset. So they come to you in your cubicle and they kind of chit chat. You chit chat and you, you love your coworker and you're a nice person. So you validate their anger, like, yeah, I know, I, I probably shouldn't have said that. And I get it. I, I get why you're upset. And then they leave your cubicle no better off. Actually, they're far worse than before because they were just a little bothered before. But now that you validated their anger, now that they are angry, 
There was no peacemaking there. What happened? Made a mountain. It was a molehill, but us being nice and validating them made it into a mountain. The enemy plays to this all the time, and it is so common. See, we all have this proclivity, and it should be on our radar. Keep the molehills the molehills. I love it when my buddies, and they, did this, they, they do this to me. Be, be like, Junior, it's not that big of a deal. Like, yeah, you're upset, but like, don't take it personally. Just take a step back. Chill out. That's not what I want to hear in the moment. I'm angry. I want to be validated by my anger. But I love it that I have my friends say, no, just keep the molehill the molehill. Those are good friends. This is what Jesus does. I love the story of James and John, two disciples or brothers. And they get mad about something and, uh, and somebody offended them. And so they go to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, let's rain down fire. Let's make a mountain of fire. And Jesus says, stop. In fact, Jesus even pokes fun at them, calls them sons of thunder. He's like, I'm going to give you guys funny nicknames right now. It's like sons of thunder. And he just calms them down. He says, I'm not going to validate your anger. Just knock it off. We'd be good to take his lead on that. Peacemaking also does not adopt the offenses of others. This is a huge, um, I hate to, I know millennials get a bad rap, but this is a big thing among millennials. It's my generation, so. But this is, this, is, this is really anybody. This is very, very common today. So here's the thing. I bet, I bet you that there is someone that you struggle with, and maybe, uh, maybe it's at work or it's in your family. Maybe it's even in this church. Maybe it's me. But there is somebody that you struggle with. You don't really like them, and you might not admit this, but you don't care for them, not because of your interaction with them, but because of your friend's interaction with them. Have you any of those relationships? Like, I am mad at you, not because of this, but because of that. So I don't really know what happened here, but I'm going to adopt my friend's offense, and now I'm going to be mad at you as well. So, 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 so common. It's like with my girls. A few weeks ago, someone was poking fun at my daughter's glasses, which is like, okay, it's like a molehill. You know, I tell my girls, like, sometimes that's boys. You know, girls, I, I used to make fun of the pretty girls too. I shouldn't have, but like, let's not like get all bent out of shape. And my daughter was bothered. She's very self-conscious about her eye and her glasses, and I get it. Well, her sisters are just as offended as her. So my one daughter told me on the way home from school, she's like, anytime I walk by his locker, I stick my tongue out at it. <laughs> okay, well, baby, that's dramatic. <laughs> I appreciate you having your sisters back. But like, like, come on, let's not shalom. But we do this on a grown-up scale all the time. And it's just as silly. I'm mad at you because my friend's mad at you. Okay, let's, come on, this isn't middle school. Let's grow up. People today are so easily offended, we don't need to adopt each other's offenses to add to it. And in today's day and age, a lot of times we adopt another person's offended offense when they're not even offended. It's like, uh, I don't know if you were here when I, I had said that I don't like chai. If you remember that, I said, I don't like chai, which I, I said chai tea, but I guess chai means tea. So it's really saying I don't like tea tea. But I was like, I don't like, I don't like chai tea. Somebody got very angry and came up to me and said, you're a racist. I was like, what? I said, yeah, you're a racist because you don't like chai tea. Chai is from India. It's like, what does that matter? It's like, you're racist against people from India. I said, no, I'm not. I don't like chai tea. And she said, well, I'm just glad I didn't bring my Indian friend to your church. I said, well, you know, honestly, if you would have brought your Indian friend, they probably would have been like, I don't like chai tea either. Like, they're not offended. I can almost guarantee you, like, that's, what, what do we do? You know, again, adopting offenses, that's not even offense from somebody else, but now I'm going to be angry with you because I'm going to adopt what's going on here. Don't adopt the offenses of others. All right, we've been negative this whole time. Let's be positive. What does peacemaking do? Peacemaking does keep circles small. 
it does keep circles small. This is the number one thing I, I try to remind myself in the middle of conflict. Keep the circle small. Keep the circles, the circles small. Because when we're fired up or when we're hurt, it feels really good to get validation. So if I'm hurt, I want to tell people, I want to bring more people in because the more people that take my side and validate my feelings, the better I feel about the feelings I feel. So then all of a sudden I have this large circle 95% shouldn't even be involved. This is one of the things that, that I say to people when they try to bring me into something that I shouldn't be involved in. Okay, Junior, this happened. Let me tell you about this. And I'll say, hey, I love you. I'm a big believer, though, in small circles. And I really believe it's best for you and for my mental health, honestly, but best for you for that to stay a small circle. So I'm going to pray for Shalom in that situation, and I hope that you go about that correctly, but I'm not going to join that circle. I'm just not a believer in growing the circle. So when there's two people in your office, they just have it out for each other, keep the issue between those two people. The solution is between those two people, not a larger group. No teams, no taking sides, no bigger circles. So now, sometimes a mediator is necessary. Sometimes counseling is necessary, but don't use that as an excuse to justify growing the circle to look for validation. And a lot of times we'll do that. It's like, I'm going to, well, I got to, you know, process my thoughts. I got to bounce some ideas off other people. A lot of times it's just an excuse to grow the circle. Peacemaking doesn't bring more people in. There's a story of Jesus with the, the woman caught in adultery. You remember the story and everybody has rocks and they want to they stone the woman caught in adultery. Everyone has something to say. Jesus shrinks the circle down to just him and her. I love that. Peacemaking shrinks the circles down to those who need to be involved. To keep the circle small. Uh, next, it starts on common ground. Peacemaking starts on common ground. This is where peacemaking starts. Common, and this is wisdom. This is tact. And I will say, this takes high emotional intelligence to be able to function and navigate this when you're feeling strong feelings. But this is where we start. So, for example, I, I tell people who like, you know, hey, I got this marriage issue. I got to have this difficult marriage discussion. I don't really know how to navigate this. Let's say, here's, here's a great place to start. You go in, not guns blazing, and you just say, hey, we, we want to have a good marriage, don't we? Like, we want to have a fun marriage, right? Like, we can come together on that. It seems like a simple statement, but it's a massive statement. Because now we're coming together to enter into conflict instead of coming in at each other guns blazing. Hey, we want a good office, don't we? Like, we want a healthy culture in our office, right? We want an office where people want to come into work, don't we? Like, we can start there. Peacemakers are usually always reminding people of the common ground in the midst of emotional conflict. They're not smoothing things over, but they're reminding of the common ground. It's, hey, I know you're fired up about this. I know you're hurt. I don't know the situation fully. But we can, like, we can ground ourselves in the common ground, right? Like, let's remember, like, we're talking about a good person here. See, we tend to hyper-focus on the things we disagree about, especially if it we're in family, because in family, kind of feel like we always have to agree on everything. But we tend to hyper-focus on what we disagree about. Zoom out, see all the common ground. That puts things in perspective, and it gives us a level head to then move into conflict with a level head. I think about what the Apostle Paul wrote the Philippian church. Uh, There's a lot of conflict going on in the Philippian church. Paul points out that there was two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who were kind of at each other, and everybody in the church is taking sides. And so Paul writes a letter, and part of the letter he addresses those two ladies in the conflict there. But throughout the, the whole book, there's this recurring theme of Paul reminding the church, we're family, we're family, we're family, we're brothers and sisters, we're brothers and sisters, we're citizens of the kingdom. That's the most important. We have far more in common than we do have differences. Like, I know you want to believe that they're the worst, but they're not. Come on, stop. 
I know you want to believe that they have it out for you, but they probably don't. Let's ground ourselves on the common ground before we address the issue. If you cannot find common ground, you are in no position mentally to head into the conflict. Next, address the issue and stays out of the weeds. Peacemaking does address the issue and stays out of the weeds. Very common thing when there's conflict resolution, especially between two people, two coworkers, family members, maybe it's you and somebody else in marriage, you and a child, the temptation is to get pulled into the weeds. So instead of addressing the driving issue, we're going to dance around it and talk about everything else that annoys us. And we're going to come up with a list because the weeds all back up my feelings. So let's talk about how you were late last week. Let's talk about how last month you said this and you did that last summer. Those are all the weeds. Let's stay on the issue. The issue is that they did this. So let's talk about this. Now, if there's a pattern, there's room to point out the pattern, but we need to stay out of all the weeds and keep the main issue. The main issue is the only one on the agenda. Again, this takes extreme discipline, but this is, this is what peacemaking does. This is what God does with us. God doesn't come at us with a list. Instead, he convicts us as issues arise. Next, peacemaking does seek what is right. And this is very hard in a postmodern world when there's you know, when truth is relative. But as believers, we believe that the truth sets us free. The truth sets us free. And so when there's conflict, we're looking for the truth. Not the quickest route to peace, necessarily. We're looking for what is right, what is true. Good conflict resolution seeks what is right. Bad conflict resolution seeks the quickest route to peace. I was guilty of this yesterday. My, my two daughters, they had an argument. And... Um, you know, they were coming at me with their arguments like, can we just, I don't want to hear about it. Let's just figure out a way to get along. Let's just compromise. Both of you are going to compromise. In that moment, I just, it was bad parenting on my part. It's like, no, what is right here? Is there somebody that was right and somebody that was wrong? Let, let's seek what is right, not necessarily just compromise. Shalom is as it ought to be. So let's put things as they ought to be. There isn't a shortcut to peace through compromising. Shalom is making things right. If both people are wrong, then both people need to own up. If one person is wrong, then one person needs to own up. We don't make things fair by like, okay, now you both apologize. You're 10% wrong and you're not. No, 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 come on. We don't need both apologizing here. If one is wrong, one was wrong. Shalom makers don't pick sides. Hey, who's my friend here? Who's my family? Who do I like more? You know, who had my back last time? I'll have their back this time. Shalom makers don't do that. Shalom makers look for truth. What is right? It doesn't play politics. It doesn't play favorites. It doesn't shortcut through compromise. Shalom aims for what is right. Let's make things as they ought to be. Sometimes that's compromise. But a lot of times in the name of compromise, we actually tend to make things worse. And the person with the stronger personality always wins in the compromise. Uh, next, it does bring people together. The word devil means divider. This is the number one goal of the enemy, to divide. Ultimately, to divide us from our creator, but to divide us from each other, to divide family units, to divide offices, and to divide churches. And here's the scary part. When the enemy divides, it is not obvious division. It's just little seeds. Little seeds of doubt. Little seeds of bitterness. And the enemy throws these seeds, and then we take it from there with our proclivity to make those seeds into mountains. Just little seeds, but we'll sweep them under the rug and we'll downplay and then we'll just drift apart. And after a while, then there's a blow up. 
Peacemaking brings people together, not under fake harmony, not through, you know, let's just all get along, compromise, move things over. Peacemakers unite. Peacemakers have hard conversations and they challenge, but ultimately it is the goal to unite, not necessarily to be right. The way I think of it is, is like, um, it's like spackle. I'm terrible at drywall. This pastor thing doesn't work out. I hope I don't end up drywalling. Like mad respect to any drywallers out here. I'm, I'm terrible at it. It's an art, and it's not an art that I've been able to learn. Actually, I'm trying to, I had to fix a water pipe in my basement last week, and then I have drywall. I put like a piece of drywall over it, and I just, I've been waiting because I don't want to spackle that thing. Like, it's just, it's always so, so messy. I'm dreading it. But the whole idea of spackle is, is if there's like a crack in the drywall or a divide, you know, you put the spackle in, and it brings the wall together. And the spackle doesn't just cover the gap. It actually strengthens the wall. Spackle is placed in the gap to bring together and to strengthen. This is what Jesus sent his followers out to do. Shalom has been lost. It was lost after creation. Now today it's foreign to anybody. So Jesus says, my followers are going to bring it. My followers are going to be these beautiful displays of shalom. People are going to look in my followers' homes and be like, look at that family. Yeah, they're not perfect. Yeah, they got their little squabbles, but like, there's just a sense of shalom in that home. Look at that church. There's just a sense of shalom in that church. When they walk into their offices, they, they're advocates and they bring shalom, working to bring things the way they should be. They'll walk in the marketplace, reunions, schools, neighborhoods as these agents of shalom. They don't play favorites. They don't compromise when they shouldn't. They're not cowards in the midst of conflict. They don't sweep things under the rug. They focus on common ground. They bring people together. They look to have right relationships. And they are courageous in conversation. That is what this world needs. It needs peacemakers. Is that you? When I was studying, when I was studying this text, the person that came to mind was my dad. How if you know him? He's a bit crazy. He, uh, he, I, I love to tease him because he can make things awkward very quickly. He has a gift for that. And um, now that he's getting old, he doesn't have a filter, which makes it even more fun. Um, and I love him very much. And I love to tease him, and he teases me more. But, um, but my dad is the kind of guy where, like I said, he can make things very awkward, and he doesn't mind awkward situations. In fact, if there's an awkward situation, he tends to run to it. But... When I think about the, the peace that my family experiences, and I'm talking about like a, an extended family on the extended family scale. Um, my brother-in-law is one of my best friends. Um, my wife gets along with my dad probably better than me and my dad get along. Um, we just have a very fun culture. When our family gets together, it's, it's very, very enjoyable. And there's nothing like, nothing under the rug that we just can't touch on. Like we just have fun together. And I owe that a lot to my dad. And now he runs toward the awkward conversations. And so if there's ever anything that might be swept under the rug or any sort of tension, my dad's going to engage that so that we can experience shalom as an extended family. Is that you? In your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in your small group, are you an agent of shalom? Or do you tend to validate out of being nice, hold on to things, and just allow it to spiral? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What, you wonder why Jesus says sons of God? Is he just being poetic here? Why does he say sons of God? Because children copy their parents. And Jesus' command to be a peacemaker is really 
a call to copy our heavenly father. Like we walked away from God. We caused this massive divide between us and God. We went and did our own thing. We left God. We walked away. What did he do? Well, he didn't come out sweeping everything under the rug and downplaying it all. No, he addressed the sin, said, you are an enemy of me. But then God took on flesh to bridge that gap. Like the cross is the spackle, if you will, between us and God. Shalom comes to us through the cross. This is why Jesus says what he says in this verse. Peacemaking is just children acting like their dad. Entering into difficult conversations and difficult situations that everybody runs from, that everybody kind of wants to tiptoe around, that everybody walks on eggshells around. But as Jesus follows you, enter into that to bring the shalom from the cross into the difficulty. Bringing people together, hard conversations, but all in grace and mercy, aimed at bringing true shalom. Applying the cross to the division in our world. It's a, yes, it's poetic, but it's quite deep what Jesus is saying here. Have you ever heard of the last gladiator fight in the Colosseum? I just read this last week and it's become one of my favorite stories. The last gladiator fight in the Colosseum in Rome took place on January 1st, 404 AD. So 404 AD, by this time, Christianity had already spread throughout the Roman Empire like wildfire. But January 1st, 404 AD, Rome's Colosseum is filled with 60,000 spectators to watch gladiators fight to the death. A Christian by the name of Telemachus couldn't stomach hearing the crowds at the Colosseum finding entertainment in death and fighting. His conviction was is that we are a Christian empire in the sense of Christianity spread throughout us. We know Christian, we shouldn't be finding entertainment in this fighting. And so with strong conviction, he ran to the Colosseum and actually ran out onto the Colosseum field yelling, in the name of Jesus, stop, forbear, forbear. Standing between the gladiators. The gladiators stood confused. The crowd began to chant, run him through, run him through run him through. The first gladiator, as as a warning, hit Telemachus in the stomach with the handle of his sword, knocking him down. Telemachus, with his wind knocked out of him, caught his breath and once again jumped up on his feet and started shouting in the name of Jesus, forbear, stop the fighting, stop this. At this point, the crowd began to chant even louder, run him through, run him through. At which... The second gladiator ran his sword through Telemachus' stomach. Telemachus fell to the ground, blood spilling out onto the fine gravel of the field. With his dying words, he shouted once more, in the name of Jesus, forbear, stop the fighting. And then he died. History tells us that at this very moment, a piercing quiet fell over the whole arena. And one by one, people in the crowd began to leave. Within minutes, historian tells us, within minutes, 60,000 spectators had left the arena. There was just two gladiators standing on the field with nobody to watch. That was the last known gladiator fight in the Colosseum. A piece that cost Telemachus everything. But I guarantee you, when Telemachus lifted his head and opened his eyes, he saw the one who sat on the rock that day that said these words. 
And he heard the father say, well done. Well done. That's my son. Blessed are the peacemakers. They pay the price. They pay a high cost and enter into conflict and awkwardness. They pay, they pay a price to bring about peace. But they are called sons of God because this is what God does for us. Anytime we run from conflict, anytime we run from a conversation we need to have, we are doing the exact opposite of what God does for us. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.